Well, good morning. You know, we're going to sit for a long time. So could you stand for me and turn and, and pick up your binders and turn them over and let's do something different. I'm, I'm coming closer because I want to be like right in your lap. I'm going to sit in your lap and teach you this morning. Um, let's say those the purpose and the discipline out loud together. So we'll kind of be teaching each other. How's that sound? All right. So we'll start with, and what, what we'll do is I'll just say purpose, and then I'll say discipline one, the heart, and then you will tell me what it says. All right. So ladies, what's the purpose of Wellspring? We and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts towards Christ with the word of God, so that the gospel transform lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel. All right, that's cool, because you're also telling people who are listening later. Very good. All right, let's tell our sisters, um, what's discipline one, the heart? Prayer shepherds her heart toward God, through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Great. And what's discipline two, the home? And discipline three, the ministry. All right, ladies, tell us what is our wellspring verse. Yay! Okay, thanks. Let's sit down. Thank you. Well, as um, well, I'm sure by now that you, my sisters, that you're hoping and perhaps even praying that that wellspring purpose is becoming a part of my life. And you know what? I'm praying, and Sarah's praying the same for you. That together we would daily strive to apply and to live out our disciplines in our lives. And as we've learned, everything that you and I do should begin with and should revolve around that first discipline of prayerfully shepherding our hearts toward God through the word of God and in particular what? The gospel, that's right. So this morning, I'm going to draw our attention and place particular prominence on discipline three. So have it again, look at it again with me, please. Um, It's the ministry. So let's say it one more time together. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Thanks. Can you identify that phrase that appears twice in this discipline? Right? God and the gospel. That appears twice. So today's lesson, ladies, is all about God and the gospel. So let's make sure that we understand that term. We'll understand. We're going to see how broadly Paul uses that term, the gospel. So on your worksheet, now you can get your worksheet out. There are several passages in Romans that we're going to refer to, both at the beginning of Romans and then at the very end of the book. 
And so if you want to have your Bibles open to Romans, um, I recommend that you do at this point. Romans 1, we're going to begin right there at the beginning with Romans 1. And first of all, we're going to find out which specific group Paul's writing this letter to. Okay, we know it's the Romans, but who? Who in Rome is he writing to? Well, let's take a peek. We're going to look at Romans 1.7. And there's the answer. Right? It says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as what? Saints. Right. All right, now let's look a few verses down. Okay, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. And Paul says there, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So ladies, it's pretty clear here that in Paul's mind, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. He's saying, I want to be encouraged by your faith in Jesus, and I want you to be encouraged by my faith in Jesus Christ. I can't wait. I'm eager to come to you. I long to see you. So let's drop down to verse 15 now. Okay, He says, so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So Paul wants to preach the gospel to Christians. Now, don't we usually think that the gospel is what we preach to unbelievers? Paul's thinking here reveals that we often have a narrow view of the gospel. You know, it's true, right? We do preach the gospel to unbelievers with the hope and the prayer that they will believe, but that's not the only use for the gospel. That kind of thinking is missing something very important, that the gospel still must be preached to those who are already in the faith. Right? So now you have some blanks on your outline under the purpose and discipline section. Um, you have two blanks. So the first one, the gospel must be preached to unbelievers. That's what you're going to write. Unbelievers with the hope that they will believe. And then, the gospel still must be preached to those who are, what do you think you're going to write in there? Believers, right. And then, would you do me a favor and underline that word still, the gospel still must be preached? So, if we preach to one group while neglecting the other, we're guilty of having that narrow view that I was just talking about of the gospel, right? That's what Discipline 3 is all about. A heart for God and what? The gospel. Okay, so you can write that down too. A heart for God and the gospel. So, let's keep reading after you write that. We're going to go down, and I'm sorry if I go too fast, somebody yell stop, and I'll slow down. Let's keep reading, though, in verse 16. So it says here, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. You probably have this memorized. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. All right, ladies. So in the first chapter of Romans, Paul's whole point 
is to preach the gospel to those who believe. So now we're going to go to the very last chapter of Romans, Romans 16. Now Romans 16, verse 1, begins with, he's greeting the Christians who are in the churches. Okay, he's greeting Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, and Priscilla, and then he's greeting Aquila, their fellow workers in Jesus, and Mary. She's worked hard for them, and he mentions some fellow prisoners, and he goes on listing many by name. Okay, but who's he talking about here? He's talking about Christians in the churches, right? So let's go to verse 26, chapter 16, verse 26, and see how this paragraph begins. Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. See, Paul wants to establish these Christians according to the gospel. Paul's thinking was, okay, I'm going to come. And I'm going to preach the gospel to you who already believe. And then at the end of the letter, he says, I want you to be established and strengthened according to my gospel. So chapter 1 is all about the gospel. That's his concern. And then the last chapter, he's concerned about the gospel. Right. So what do you think is in between? (laughs) Right? Do you think it's going to be something other than the gospel? No. You know, what's in between is some of the richest gospel theology you'll find anywhere. We need to understand how inseparable theology and the gospel are and how important that doctrine is and how important it is that our doctrine is in accordance with the gospel. Ladies, it's all about the gospel. That's the way Paul saw it. And that's the way you should see it, too. You preach the gospel. You begin with the gospel. You take steps forward in the gospel. It's all the gospel. It's where all theology and doctrine are rooted. They're inseparable. And what we need to remember as we step into one another's lives in our church and beyond our church is that should be our leading concern as well. When we talk about Discipline 3, we're talking about ministry concerning the gospel with one another. Okay, We're bringing the gospel into everything. We want to help one another engage with the fullness of the gospel. All right, let's stop for a minute there. Because what exactly does that term, fullness of the gospel, mean? We want to make sure that we understand what that means because we hear these phrases and terms so often. Let's make sure we haven't forgotten the meaning or the implication. Okay, so think about the phrase, the fullness of the gospel. And think, if you were to explain that, what would you say that it meant? Okay. Well, it means that we're letting the gospel motivate our ministry and inform our ministry. We want to help one another understand the implications that the gospel has for all life. Think of what we would miss, ladies, if we stepped into one another's lives and we gave the impression that the gospel, that was only um, something that saved you in the past. We can't think that way, friends. We must remember that the gospel has everything to do with right now. So, if we're saying that ministry is all about the gospel, then what must we know? 
Right. We must know you can shout it out, Terry. Yay. We must know the gospel. If we're bringing the gospel into everything, if that's how we're saved, and if we want to help each other know how the gospel is used every day in our battle with sin, in our thought life, in our relationships, in our service, in everything, then we need to know it. Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is the power of God. It tells us what the gospel can accomplish in us, our union with Christ, and that we can now live in a manner that is worthy of our calling. So in our homework this week, we get to write out the gospel. And as we do, we'll need to make sure that we include the truth about God and his character, the truth about sin and what its effects and its consequences are, the results, the effects and the benefits of those who repent and believe in the good news, forgiveness, new life, right? I'm reading a great book called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And he says that we need to understand, and here's on your, on your outline, four vitally important biblical concepts. So let's write these down. Holiness, and I'll repeat these. Holiness, justice, sin, and grace. Number one is holiness. And then there's justice. Number three is sin. And number four, grace. He says we cannot understand divine mercy until we have some understanding of divine justice. So be sure to think about these things as you think about God and his character. Think about how holy and just, how how holy and just God is, and therefore... He must punish sin. Think about how God demonstrated divine mercy on his elect by placing the punishment and the penalty of sin on the sinless one, Christ. And as you write the gospel, you may want to include um, how we're saved from God, to God, and by God. As we all grow in our understanding of the gospel's power and purposes, we will be more willing to share it to both believers and unbelievers. So, to help us better understand and communicate the gospel, this morning um, we each received a handout called The Gospel, Three Resources. And you can put this in the resource section of your binder later. So if you need better help in understanding the gospel and how to share it, take time, please take time to soak yourselves in the truth of the gospel over the next few weeks using this handout. You can ask your discussion leader. You can talk to Sarah, talk to Anne, talk to me. Ladies, we must not be content until we know the gospel, understand the gospel, and until we're able to communicate the gospel. This is what belongs at the center of our relationships, just as it was for Paul. This is what it means to make Christ the point of our lives, not just a part of our lives. This is what we need in order to come into our relationships thinking, 
Hey, you're my sibling in Christ. I want to encourage you with the gospel. And you know what? I need you to encourage me with the gospel. So let's put, um, let me put some questions out there for each of us to ponder. Okay. Is this what we think when we go to someone who's struggling? Is this what we think when we're struggling? Do we ask others to preach the gospel to us? Hmm. Because you know what? When we are struggling, what we need more than anything else, right? We need a hug, but we need more than anything else is to be reminded of the great truths of the gospel and the power of the gospel. We need to believe that humbly going to the gospel together will give us eyes to see God's grace and to be transformed by his grace in that area where we are struggling. Sisters, that's what it means to be ministry-minded with one another. And this is the heart of effective gospel ministry that Discipline 3 is concerned with. Okay, so with that in mind, let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the gospel. We need it. We need the gospel. Lord, I pray that you help us rely on you to reveal the truth about the gospel to our own hearts first and then to those in our household and then those in the church and beyond. Lord, please draw us near. Please, God, show us what effective gospel ministry looks like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to go on to the lesson now. Today, we're going to make six statements on what effective gospel ministry should be. We're going to use positive and negative statements. And I will tell you the words to put into the blanks when we get to them. Okay? So you will also find some application points. And then you're going to find some questions. So that's how your outline is made today. So for your homework, in addition to writing out the gospel, okay, we're also going to get to respond to at least one question or at least one application point. Okay, You'll need to think through how you can personally answer and personally apply um, the one that you chose in a very specific way in your own life. So as we're going through these questions or applications, if you see one you'd be excited about, um, put a little check there, but then pray about which ones you should answer. And you know what? It doesn't mean you shouldn't just answer one. You can answer all of them if you'd like. Um, But please think about each one. And please pray about each one, will you? And please ask the Holy Spirit to help you rightly respond to each one. So now we're going to go to lesson one, number one, I'm sorry, on our lesson, entitled Examples of Paul, Six Evidences of Effective Gospel Ministry. And we're going to fill in the blanks in a moment. Well, I'm so glad that we all had a chance to read chapters one and chapters two of First Thessalonians this week, at least twice, I hope. We got to list all the observations we made about Paul and Silas and about the Thessalonians themselves. And you probably observed that First Thessalonians is a letter from a pastor missionary who is burdened for his people and for the people that he wants to be with. But you know what? He can't be with them. 
And as we study the passages together this morning, we'll get to see a perfect example of the kind of character that you and I must have in gospel ministry. We're going to see also a perfect example of being effective carriers of the gospel ministry. You know what we should be asking ourselves? How can we begin to be effective gospel carriers? Like Paul, like the ones we just read about. Well, that is what we're going to be spending some time doing, and that's why we all need to spend time knowing what the gospel is. That's why we're doing that in our homework this week. You and I need to preach effective content of the gospel. And you and I need to be effective carriers of the gospel message. So let's look down at 1 Thessalonians 1.5 to see how this is played out in Paul's interaction with the Romans. We're going to camp out in 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in Acts for a little bit, but we'll mostly be there now. Verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Let's jump down to 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Do you see how Paul is making it clear that it was only one message that came to them, but it wasn't in word only to see that? Well, we're going to focus on how else it came to them. So let's take some time to get a little background of what happened in Acts as the gospel did come to the Thessalonians. And Scott's so nice. He just happened to preach, right, on this last week. How did he know we were teaching it today? Well, that's God's grace. God's amazing grace because we just had a fabulous sermon on that. If you haven't heard it, please go online and listen. So we're going to keep our finger now on 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 and turn to Acts, Acts 17. Acts 17 gives a greater appreciation of what Paul is going through. And the reason he's writing what he is writing to the Thessalonians, the record that is found in Acts 17 talks about Paul and Silas and Timothy They left Philippi and they traveled 33 miles to Amphipolis and then 28 miles further to Apollonia. And their next trip was about 40 miles to Thessalonica, where Paul ministered in the synagogue for perhaps three weeks. And then he saw, during that time, he saw a number of people converted. Now, in the city, there was a large group of Gentile proselytes. And your Bible says... Greek are God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women, and that's in verse 4, chapter 17. And they responded enthusiastically to the gospel, along with some of the Jews. You know, that kind of success, it enraged some people, didn't it? It enraged the Orthodox Jews, and they jealously engineered a mob scene to hinder Paul and his ministry, and that's in verse 5. So, the believers thought it best for Paul and his party to leave, which they did. And first they went to Berea, that's verse 10. And then, jump down, verses 14 and 15. 
Paul left Silas and Timothy at Berea, and he went alone to Athens. But he told them to come to him as soon as they could. So what do you think Paul was going through during that time of separation? Well, we know, because we can read it. Jump back now, flip back to 1 Thessalonians. Right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 tells us, what he was thinking it says but we brethren having been taken away from you for a short while in person not in spirit were all the more eager with great desire to see your face for we, we wanted to come to you i paul more than once yet satan hindered us for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation is it not even you in the presence of our lord jesus at his coming for you are our glory and our joy you know, when Timothy joined Paul at Athens, the apostle promptly sent him back to Thessalonica to encourage the new church. That's what 1 Thessalonians 3 is all about. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, Paul says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Verse 5. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Do you see Paul's heart here? Silas, Timothy, and Paul. This is so exciting. They finally meet together at Corinth. And that's back in Acts 18.5. And Timothy reports on the state of that baby church. In, Thessal in Thessalonica, okay? When Timothy comes and gives Paul the news that the Thessalonians were doing well, <sighs> Paul can completely unleash himself and devote himself to the word and to minister to the Corinthians. Do you know why he could? He is assured of what was happening in Thessalonica. And what was happening, ladies, in Thessalonica? Let's find out, okay? First Thessalonians 3 6 through 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us longing to see us just as we also long to see you for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you and your faith. For now we really live. If you stand firm in the Lord, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we have night and day, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Ladies, here's where we get to see what kind of believers they are in Thessalonica, right? It was from Corinth, about the year A.D. 50, that Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. And as he's writing from Corinth, how does he feel, right? Ah, happy, overjoyed, comforted about them. Through their faith, he can hardly stand it. And Paul says in verse 8 that he really lives. If the Thessalonians stand firm in the Lord, oh, no wonder he was overjoyed. So in number one, on your worksheet, we get to fill in some blanks now. Number one, effective gospel ministry is not, and in the, that first blank, please write, in word only. 
is not in word only. But rather, we're going to write three things. In power, in the Holy Spirit, and the last one, with full conviction. Okay? Effective gospel-centered ministry is not in word only, but rather in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Look at that verse with me, please, that passage, to see what Paul says about the gospel. Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. All right, let's stop for a minute. We need to stop. All right, we just read those phrases, heard them several times. Let's make sure we understand what those three prepositional phrases mean. Power, Holy Spirit, and full conviction. Okay, Paul and his co-laborers came in power. What does that mean? It means the power of God that accompanied the ministry. It wasn't their power. It was God's power. They came in connection with the Holy Spirit. Hmm. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit was tangibly present, and he was empowering them. One role of the Holy Spirit is to empower gospel witness. Praise God. Paul and his co-laborers came with full conviction. What does that mean? It means full confidence. Full confidence. So let's look at application one. As I step into the lives of others, my leading concern must be the only message Paul gave. There it is, ladies, the gospel. You and I must know the gospel, and when we preach it, we must do so boldly, and ladies, we can do it with full conviction, knowing that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. Okay, full stop again. I want to make sure we live in these words for a minute, okay? We don't just want to gloss over full conviction, right? It means that we're fully convinced. Fully convinced about what? Ourselves? <laughs> no. Terry, go, go for it. Say that word. Yay! The power, but not just the gospel, but listen, the power and hope of the gospel. When? Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, you know, always. Thank you, Terry. Every circumstance. Okay, I'll say that again. We're fully convinced of the gospel, the power and the hope of the gospel for every circumstance. Being fully convicted and convinced of the power and the hope of the gospel for every circumstance. Don't we want to be that kind of women? I do. So let's unpack this thought just a little more. You know, I'll be honest. When I evaluate my own life and see if I declare the word of God with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know, I realize, wow, I'm setting my sights right here on earth way too low. I don't usually pray, God, as I seek to bring the gospel into my relationships, please send your power. And please send your Holy Spirit. And God, I need full conviction that the gospel is sufficient in everything. Right? If I do that, I'm not adding on things to the gospel. That's so important. Ladies, let's shepherd our hearts to the word of God to get the gospel, to get Jesus. Sisters, let's plead with God for his power. 
Let's long for it. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in our life. Let's plead for greater conviction about the gospel's power to transform lives through our ministry. Okay, let's recap the gospel ministry. Okay, number one, the gospel must come in words, right? Gospel words are a must. The gospel did not come to you in word only, right? We should speak it well because another person's life is depending on it. So we do need to speak it well. Ladies, faith comes from hearing. That's why we need to speak it well. It doesn't come from watching. But it's also important to be the kind of women we must be. Paul isn't saying, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, right? Romans 10, 13, and 17, Paul says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, here it is. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And that leads us to application number two. Shepherd my heart to know the gospel. Know its content, what it means for my past, present, and future sins, and that I now, praise God, have a desire for his word. I also can, or I also have to know its implications for my own life, such as that I'm free from bondage to sin. Let's circle that word from. I'm free from bondage to sin because I'm also free to something. Right? I'm free to be God's servant. So we can circle that word to. Ephesians 3, 14 through 16 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. What are we strengthened with? With power that comes through the Holy Spirit. And here's our application number three. Plead with God for power from him and plead for more fullness of the Holy Spirit in my life. Aim to be a woman who is growing in confidence in the gospel at all times. You know, I would also suggest you circle those words at all times. All right, let's unpack that for a minute. Practically speaking now, what does at all times look like? You know, we paused to make sure we knew what full conviction means. It means we're fully convinced about the power and the hope of the gospel. When? For every circumstance, right? At all times. I hope this makes you think back to our beloved discipline one. Right? She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. We spend time each 
and every day in the word of God so that we can shepherd our hearts toward the gospel, thus becoming a woman who is growing in greater confidence in the gospel when? At all times. Let's stop to rehearse some of the gospel realities here for a moment, ladies. A reality like we can do nothing apart from Christ. Or the reality that once you and I become a Christian, we now have the capacity to shepherd our hearts, our inner man, to God. And the reality that, hey, before conversion, we desired nothing. There was nothing in our heart that desired God, right? The primary tool God gives us to shepherd our heart like that, what is it? His word. That's the primary tool. So every day when we're coming to God in the word, when we're opening our Bibles, here's what we should be asking ourselves. We should say, hey, self, why am I even in the Bible today? And the answer should be, you know what? I am here to meet with God in the, in the place that he revealed himself most clearly. I'm worshiping God. I love God. I revere God. And I need God so that I can obey him. Doing this will help us avoid just opening our Bible and feeling good about ourselves, having completely missed God in our time in the Word. So don't settle for that. I don't want to settle for that. We open our Bibles because we personally want to worship and draw near to God. When we do this, ladies, everything falls into place because everything in life is full of Christ. And that will help us become women who are growing in greater confidence in the gospel at all times. Happy face, happy face, happy face, right? Let's go on to number two. Effective gospel-centered ministry is not blank, but rather is blank. The first blank is stagnant. It's not stagnant. But rather is reproducing. It's not stagnant, stagnant, but is reproducing. Reproducing. Let's look at the first part of First Thessalonians one six. Says you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now he's not saying of us and of the Lord. He's not saying that there were two different lives to imitate because Paul's pattern of life was in alignment with Jesus. He's saying if you imitate me, you will be imitating Christ. By the way, he also says this to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, Be imitators of me just as I also am imitators of Christ. Those two words, just as, they're almost like an equal sign. They're comparison. Sisters, we do want to make sure the gospel comes in words. I want us to get that. But we also need to step, to push a step beyond that um, so that our prayer would be, God, please make us, make me, into an imitatable woman. Uh-oh, hold on a second. An imitatable woman? Uh, are you sure you mean me? <laughs> Make me an example for others to imitate? Yeah, bingo. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. People are watching us. Scary, right? People are watching us. But hey, it is scary until you remember the gospel and rehearse it to yourself, right? Because... Then, as your life is in alignment 
with Christ and as my life is in alignment with Christ. The gospel enables us to live a life that is worth imitating. Woohoo! Don't you love that word alignment? I, I like words. And I like that word alignment because it makes me think of driving. You know, it's easy to tell when a car is out of alignment, right? Yeah, it's a real pain to drive, too. On the other hand, you know, when a car is in alignment, it means it travels in a straight line, all four tires actually pointing in the same direction, and they're wearing down evenly. You don't have to fight the steering wheel to keep that car from going straight. Um, To keep the car going straight, I mean. And when you drive a car that is in alignment, you know, you don't even notice it, do you? You don't drive your car and then go, oh, man, what nice alignment that car has, right? No, because you expect the car to be in alignment because that's what it's supposed to do. Well, that's the kind of life in Christ I want, right? It's supposed to operate that way. I'm supposed to operate that way. I want to be in such proper alignment with Jesus that people don't even notice me, right? That's the way I'm supposed to operate. So practically speaking again, what should our desire be? What should our prayer be? What should our plan be? Hmm. It should be that we so align our lives with Christ that others might imitate our life as we imitate Christ. Now, hmm, what does having a life worth imitating look like? Hmm, think about that for a moment. What does it look like? It means that every day and all throughout the day, we're shepherding our hearts by soaking ourselves in the gospel and then going to the cross with our sin and rejoicing that Jesus paid for that sin. He died for it. I'm no longer a slave to it. You know what? I can be obedient. I get to be obedient. We must shepherd our heart to God and plead with him to make us a a reflection of Christ. Paul understood this. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul describes himself as the foremost of sinners. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You know why he could say that? He could say that only if he understood well the gospel implications for his own life, right? And so must we. When we do this, it brings a humble joy as we rest in the completed work of Christ on the cross. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That kind of Galatians 2.20 living is worth imitating. Let's jump down to application four. In Christ, I am a role model. I should plead with God to make me a clearer reflection of Jesus Christ so that people can imitate me and the Lord. Let's look at the second part of 1 Thessalonians 1.6 now to see under what circumstances the Thessalonians imitated Paul. All right. They imitated him, do you see it? In much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There were lots of trials. Remember back in Acts 17, the mob that set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason? Hey, there was much tribulation. 
What about you and what about me? Have you and I ever thought that we need to be worthy of imitation when we're going through a trial? Do others say, hey, you are a great example to me as you go through this trial? Wow. Okay, so they imitated Paul in much tribulation. But let's look again at verse 6. It says, with how? With the, do you see it? Joy of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Hmm. Well, this refers to the joy that the indwelling Holy Spirit gives Christians when in the midst of suffering. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And MacArthur says that this describes an attitude of praise and thanksgiving regardless of circumstances, which flows from one's confidence in God's sovereignty. Tribulation doesn't kill the Thessalonians' joy, and thus they received the gospel with great joy amidst tribulation. Hmm. There's application five for you. Trouble does not kill my joy. Joy and trouble, they get to live together, right? They get to coexist. Okay, practically speaking, in your life, in my life, what does our biblical version of joy amidst tribulation supposed to look like? What is it supposed to look like? Are we supposed to clap our hands and say, oh, goody, tribulation? Of course not. I could answer that in so many ways, but I'm going to give us two things to think about here. The biblical version of joy amidst tribulation means that it's a joy that comes from choosing to treasure and value and rejoice that our names are written in heaven. And Sarah, I'm so glad for that circle lesson you taught because that blue circle, that's where we need to be living, right? Um, That includes reminding ourselves when there's tribulation, hey, you know what? I deserve health, so anything else is a good day, right? (laughs) Okay, so what resulted in the Thessalonians receiving the word in much tribulation and with joy in the spirit? What resulted? A real life God, a real live gospel imitation chain reaction. And we get to see it right now. Okay, it is in 1 Thessalonians 1, 7, and 8. It's the imitation chain reaction. It starts, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Okay, ready for the chain reaction? Here it is. First, Christ is being imitated by Paul. Next, Paul is being imitated by the Thessalonians. And then last, the Thessalonians were an example to be imitated by those in Macedonia and in Achaia. It's like a relay race. You know, when someone passes you the baton, you run with it, right? But you don't keep it to yourself. You pass it on to the next person, fully expecting her to pass it on to the next person, and so on. And so application number six says, aim for imitating Christ as an example for others to imitate. See how we're pushing it beyond? Even that isn't far enough. 
Wow, aim for those imitating me to become an example for others. Think about that. Aim at nothing, and you hit it every time. Let's look again at verse 8. It gives an an explanation of how this takes place. Do you see the word of the Lord sounded forth? See those words sounded forth? Think of a trumpet. Okay, Think of an intense trumpet blast. Paul has been with them, remember, for at most three months. And yet, those Thessalonians were distinctly, distinctly sounding forth the gospel in every place. Wow, ladies, that was one effective sounding forth. Here's the key statement on how effective it was. Verse 8. Do you see it? So that we have no need to say anything. I have nothing to add, nothing to say. Think about this. There are places Paul did not have to go because the Thessalonians were blasting forth the gospel. The good news had already traveled. You know, Paul would start to tell people about the Thessalonians. People would say, oh, no, I already heard about it. I already heard about the gospel. That's an effective life in ministry. Happy face, happy face. Let's do number three now, and then we'll take a break. Effective gospel-centered ministry is not in vain. So your first blank is in vain. But rather with boldness in God. Effective gospel ministry is not in vain, but rather with boldness in God. Now you have to write that small, right? Because those lines are a little short. Just squeeze it in. First one, nine. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves, brethren, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. There you go. But After we already suffered and had been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid amid much opposition. Paul is deeply concerned that the the Thessalonians would engage in the gospel. If there was ever an opportunity to change the message and, you know, tone it down a bit, it would have been right then. Because remember back in Acts 16, Paul and Silas were beaten in Philippi, and then they were unjustly imprisoned. You know, just maybe it would have been okay, permissible, maybe even a little justifiable to let Paul kind of back off, take some R&R, you know. Hey, that's not with Paul. Paul brought the gospel forward with boldness and courage. The gospel is all Paul talked about. So what was the result of his preaching? You can find it. In verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. Tell me, what was reported? Do you see it there? The kind of reception we had with you. You know that word reception? You know, it's like an entrance. The kind of entrance Paul had was a wide open entrance, a welcome path into their lives. The porch lights were on. The welcome mats were out. The doors were unlocked. That was the report that was going out. Paul's ministry was well received. Paul is emphasizing how important the messenger is. All right, ladies, what does that mean? Important the messenger is. It means his manner among them. And that the kind of man he proved to be among them, by that I mean his behavior, 
was never an obstacle to the gospel. You know, we're pretty much guaranteed they never said, you know, I really liked what Paul said, but oh man, he was acting kind of like a creep, wasn't he? You know, they never said that. You know, instead we get the idea that when they saw Paul coming, they were thinking, tell us everything you know, Paul. Tell us more. We want more. We can't get enough. We want all you can give us. Those Thessalonians had never met anyone like Paul. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) We need to sit up and take notice of that, ladies. Because here's our very important danger warning, I want to say. You and I need to avoid the danger of being overly concerned about wanting to be liked or wanting to be welcomed, wanting to be well-received. We don't want to be overly concerned with that because that over-concern can cause a watering down of the telling the gospel message. Uh Uh-oh, you know, it really can. Doing this can lead to shallow, hollow, or empty conversations about frivolous things, and we all know what that looks like, right? Consider as an example Paul's short time with the Thessalonians. It wasn't a shallow, it wasn't empty, it wasn't hollow, because he was speaking the gospel to them. This is how it should be with us. Anytime you and I engage someone in the gospel, it's never empty, it's never vain, it's never hollow. And that's what application number seven says. It says, when I talk about the gospel, how I'm pursuing repentance, what God is teaching me, it's never hollow or empty. Well, so far, we've had a lot of application points, and now we're going to come to our first question. So remember, for the homework, in addition to to writing out the gospel, we're also going to respond to at least one application point or at least one question. Question one, am I too accustomed to emptiness so that I don't recognize when my conversations are hollow or vain? Am I concerned to engage people with the gospel? Okay, we're going to get to a part of our lesson that's kind of fun. We get to go on a hunt. (laughs) We get to go on a sandwich hunt, that is. Sound interesting? Okay, let's have some fun. Paul sometimes makes these sandwiches with our thoughts. It's really fun to find these sandwiches. And we're going to find it three times, and then the fourth time you can look for it on your own. It's like two pieces of bread, okay? So two similar ideas there at the bread, top and bottom. And in the middle... That's the meat. That's where he's making the point. So let's begin and see if we can find the first sandwich in 1 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. It says, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amid much opposition. So do you see the, the bread? Here we have suffered and been mistreated, the first sandwich or the first piece of bread. And then the bottom piece of bread is amid much opposition. So we have suffered and mistreated amid much opposition. Okay. And what's in the middle? Suffered, opposition in the middle is boldness. Do you see it? Boldness to speak, uh, boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. There you go. Boldness means freedom of speech, of all speech. It denotes a state of mind in which your words come out freely. There's no holding back. You're at home. You have confidence with no restraints. That kind of boldness is always attached 
to proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament. So, despite being sore and tender and bruised and achy and uncomfortable and all else that Paul was, because he was severely beaten with rods, Paul had the freedom to preach the gospel. That's boldness in our God. Paul was so aligned with God that no hardship, no opposition took that boldness from him. Why do you think there was this freedom in God to keep on in Paul to keep on speaking? The answer is that Paul's eyes were more focused on God than they were on any opposition, and that leads us to application number 8. The fundamentals of gospel ministry require me to be bold. No one in heaven has to be bold. I have to be bold here because there is trouble here. You know, remember, we're in enemy territory. We have to be on the alert because there's an enemy on the prowl who wants to weaken and destroy our gospel influence by tempting us to relax, chill, take it easy, have a you-deserve-a-break-today mentality when it comes to boldly proclaiming the gospel. D.A. Carson says Satan takes no vacations. The moment we're content in this fallen world, the dangers return. Not least, here it is, the danger of (laughs) over-contentment. Without being contentious, prepare for conflict. Without being combative, equip yourself for the good fight. 2 Timothy 4.7 It will last as long as you live. So as long as we're alive, we're in a battle. So, ladies, keep your boots on. When we get to heaven, we get to stop fighting, right? Until then, we never stop fighting. No vacations, no days off. Question two. What needs to happen daily to increase my God-given boldness to speak the gospel? Wow. Let's think about that one. Does this remind you of our beloved Discipline 1? Remember, we never graduate from Discipline 1. What needs to happen daily is that you and I should be coming to the Word of God primarily to see God, and in doing so, boldness comes gushing from our hearts. Conversely, what is the effect if we starve ourselves of the Word of God? Mm, You can't expect anything to gush about God. Okay, we are on number four. Effective gospel-centered ministry is not, I want you to write, centered on man, but rather centered on God. Or or you could write man-centered, God-centered if you want to. Okay, so effective gospel-centered ministry is not centered on man, but rather centered on God. And that's in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. It says, For our exhortation did not come from error or impunity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we may have asserted our authority. Application 9 says, Labor in such a way that I want nothing less than repentance and transformation. 
as I serve the Lord and wait for Jesus. You know, the goal is not to be a jerk. I hope you're getting that. It is to be likable, right? It is to be easily received. But if all we are is likable and people don't change, that's not gospel ministry. We need to preach about sin. You and I should aim to be likable and easily received. And we should also aim to rebuke, confront, admonish, and correct about sin. Ding, 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 ding. Here's the next warning bell, ladies. There is a danger. Listen, if you are among people and they like you, but they haven't changed, that should break your heart. Do you know what Paul was always aiming for? Paul was always aiming for repentance. So, of course, you and I should plan to be nice, to be likable, to be kind, but we should also aim for repentance along with the receptivity that we get. You know, I get it. I admit it. You know, we all want to be liked. But you don't just want others to like you. You don't want just that. Your goal is not merely for your kids, your friends, your siblings, your roommates, your parents, etc. to like you, but that they repent of their sin. So let's not let one diminish the other. Let's also remember, (laughs) we're not the ones that invented the message, right? Paul says the origin of the message and the mission is God. This is not Paul's message or, or something that he dreamed up. Hey, you know what? It's not our message either. The message originates from God. You know, Paul is an apostle of Christ. You remember what apostle means, right? That means a sent one. Paul did not send himself. He is a sent one of Christ on a mission. The messengers, the sent ones, they belong to Christ. So let's go on on our sandwich hunt again and look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Do you see that it begins with testing and it ends with testing? So you're going to put testing on the, the top piece of bread and testing on the bottom piece of bread. And then the middle, the meat, or the peanut butter, (laughs) is to be entrusted with the gospel. We're testing to be entrusted with it. And that's what I'd like you to write in the blanks. God tests us, tests, to entrust us. He tests us to entrust us with the gospel. Approved, examined, test, it's the same word. The fact that he uses it twice means it's on his mind. The kind of testing that God does is to prove it's genuine. Ladies, he doesn't test to prove that it will fail because it's his. He's going to test it to prove it's genuine. You know, it's the idea of the metal worker or the silversmith. He melts down the metal because he wants what's good in it. And then he skims off the stuff that's bad, the impurities, until it shines, until it reflects the smith. 
He does this to show its, his, its worth and its genuineness. Here's what I want us to get. Men, men are going to test to see other men fail. But God tests to show genuineness of what he put there. If there's something genuine there, it's something that God put there. By his grace, it's not something I had. He's going to test me. He's going to test you. He's going to do that to reveal what is good in us, what he put there. Paul felt tested. Paul examined his heart, and then he entrusted it with the gospel. Here's a quote. Since, and it's on your paper, since the gospel is of divine origin, no one may take it upon himself to proclaim it. God chooses his messengers, and he tests them before committing the gospel to their trust. Wow, that's a good one, right? Question three, do you and do I want to be entrusted with the gospel? Remember, the character of God is that he is testing to refine me, not to advertise my failure, but to bring out what is in there from him for his sake. I love that. Number five, let's move on. Effective gospel-centered ministry is not me, 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 right? It's not me-centered but rather it's others-centered. Others-centered. So it's not me-centered. It's others-centered. Verses 7 and 8 starts, But we, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel but our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Now, if you're reading along with me in your Bible's verse 7, begins with that word, but. But is a contrast, right? Uh, to what is being said, to what is being said before. It's as if Paul said, you know what? As apostles, we have the right to make you supply us. But in contrast, we were gentle while we were among you. The weightiness and the burden that we could have set on you we set that aside. Now remember, Paul has some pretty impressive credentials. His ID card pulled it out. It says, Paul, Apostle of Christ. You know, that's pretty impressive, right? He actually saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he received teaching from Jesus. Wow, he could have flown first class all the way. And yet Paul went to extreme lengths, extreme lengths, to meet the needs of his hearers in order not to appear heavy-handed. Paul didn't want anything, anything to be distorted as being heavy-handed. As a matter of fact, his intent was the very opposite of demanding and being heavy-handed. That's why Paul's analogy of the nursing mother is so powerful. A nursing mother doesn't want to place a burden on the baby. Instead, she seeks to remove any burden that her baby might feel. You know, I have the privilege of watching Cassidy with her newborn, Oliver, and and she allowed me to use this example. You know, the delivery was hard. But, you know, she doesn't say, all right, Oliver, I was in hard labor for hours. Now you owe me, right? She doesn't say, I worked hard, I worked day and night to keep you comfortable and dry and fed. So now you, Oliver, need to pay attention to me. No, that's silly, right? Instead, she stoops to his level of need. She gently feeds him. 
And then, you know, instead of just running off, she actually she stays with them, right, after he's received the milk. She makes sure he's digesting it properly. She doesn't do this once. She does it over and over again in the day and in the night. There's a great quote for you to read later from Hybert. You know, it's like Jesus becoming a baby. He becomes like us so we could become like him. It's not gentleness for just for the sake of being gentle. It's accommodating himself to people who've never heard the gospel before. And you know this nursing mom analogy? <laughs> it's not just for moms, right? It's for every one of us women here today. For us women, it means, it means being available to others, to anyone. Um, we don't just stand on a theological hill you know, and bark orders for others to get to where we are. Instead, we walk humbly down in the muck and we help them to be in a better place. Didn't Jesus do that? Paul did that too. They needed a nursing mother. <laughs> and the apostle said, hey, I will do that. So... Let's recap. You bring the gospel no matter what people think, right? But the goal is that you love the people that you bring the gospel to. The gospel is the milk that they need. It's what changes us, right? It's what nourishes us, and that's what nourishes others too. Look at question four. How well am I not only at assessing the spiritual level of another, but then gently stepping to their level to build them up. Think about it. Are there any current new believers or not yet believers in my life to step into? Hmm. Okay, sandwich time. One last time. We'll do it together. Number eight. uh, uh, Two eight. Okay. (laughs) Chapter two, verse eight. Having so fond an affection for you, We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. See if you see the first sandwich, I'm sorry, the first piece of bread. It begins with fond affection. You see it? And then look at the very last part of verse 8. You had become dear to us. So it begins with fond affection. You can write that in the top box, fond affection. And it ends with, became very dear to us. And in the middle, imparted the gospel and our lives. Imparted gospel and our lives. You know, you want to give yourself and you want to give the gospel to be in conjunction with love and affection for people. There is gospel content, and there is gospel care, which is personal involvement, and we need both. That's the meat in our sandwich. That is what comes out of affection for those to whom you minister. Hey, you know what would be a really good habit for us to get into? Let's each of us have a list of the people whom we want to bring and who need to have the gospel brought to them. People for whom we're praying. And you know what? As we pray for those people, let's also pray for our hearts, for our affection toward them to increase. So that as we are prepared, so that, I'm sorry, so that we are prepared to be loving gospel messengers. Let's do that. Let's also now look down at question number five. 
how is my effectiveness and the gospel impacted by the level or absence of affection for others? Are there any relationships in which my love must be rekindled? How do I rekindle my affection for someone? Hmm. Good questions to think about. You girls are doing great staying with me here, and we're almost finished. Okay, number six. Effective gospel-centered ministry is not burdensome. So that word is burdensome, but rather blameless. Blameless. Verse 9. For you recall, brethren, how our labor and hardship how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You know what? You may have expected him to say day and night instead of night and day, but to make himself available to people he worked late at night so that he would not be a burden to anyone. Also, Paul knew it might become an obstacle, an obstacle if he asked for money, so he kept the path clear even though he had a right to ask for money. He was willing to bear the hardship of working late into the night to spare the Thessalonians of bearing the hardship of pooling all their money together to care for him. Now, if you flip your worksheet over for me, you're going to see question six. Just flip it right over. Look at question six. It says, can I recall how an older, wiser believer personally made sacrifices so I could keep growing in the gospel? For whom will I seek the same? Okay, just flip it back over, please. And let's look at the fourth sandwich. Okay, so because of time constraints, um, you you can have fun finding that on your own or or do it together in your discussion groups. But I'm going to read the passage to you. Verse 10. "You You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you now, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See what Paul's saying? He's saying, you saw how we lived and we saw how you live. And so now I'm going to have this fatherly pursuit of you, my children. It's like he's saying, I've been changed, and I'm seeking a holy life, and you must seek a holy life. And the kind of person I'm going to be in the midst of all that is like a father. Do you see those three participles, those three ing words that shows what it's like to like that shows what it is like to be a father pursuing his children? Do you see them exhorting, encouraging, imploring? There's room on your paper to write that down. Exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. Exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. Can we stop a minute and define these three words so that, because we use them so often in our Christian circles, exhorting and encouraging, those are both kind of the same words. They, they both mean coming alongside of someone in order to encourage them or give them admonishment. It's like Paul saying, all right, we were alongside you to encourage you and also to exhort you, but imploring, that word imploring, that goes way beyond. That means to testify. Scott Maxwell likes to say, insist. 
okay? We're insisting that you live trans, a transformed life. Paul did it like a father would insist his own son behave. So in the same part that we read here, we have Paul behaving like a mother, right? And then now he's behaving like a father. How cool is that? So let's go to our conclusion. The inseparable, unbeatable combination in the gospel-centered ministry. Your last blanks to fill in. Proclamation and demonstration. So the first blank, proclamation, and then we have demonstration. Well, proclamation, what does that mean? Paul drew heavy attention to the gospel itself in his ministry. He was concerned with the content of the gospel and demonstration, but the weight of chapters 1 and 2 is that Paul demonstrated the gospel ministry. He carried, he incarnated, sorry, the gospel ministry. Paul counted on the fact that he proved himself to be something in front of them. And he was so encouraged that they actually became examples among others. And that's how it should be with us too, right? We must proclaim and, you know, we must be close enough to touch others. And that's the demonstration part. So look down at question seven. How would I rate my own life on this combination? Where am I strong? Where am I weak? And why have I become weak? Hmm. What must happen to become stronger in that area? Hmm. All right. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> right. Danger. You, you can't become strong on your own strength. You can't do it. It happens with, it happens with prayer, with God's help. Right? It's, we cannot do it on our own. Each of us has to stop. We have to analyze. We have to pray about it. We have to do that to see how in our lives, where are we weak? Hmm. Which side are we weaker on? Which side are we stronger on? Because we tend to be either one or the other. Some of us are very focused on being sure we give out the gospel, right? Without necessarily being convinced how we give out the gospel, right? You're going to get the gospel, right? When I'm done, you're going to get that gospel, Missy. Right? But don't be satisfied with, oh, I gave him the gospel. I may have been a little harsh, but, you know, at least I gave him the gospel. We don't want to be satisfied with that. But at the same time, and this is kind of where I have my um, weakness, is that some of us might be more on the relational side. We might be inclined to think, I need to build a really strong relationship and show the love of Christ. But then, you know, we never get around to actually sharing the gospel. So don't be satisfied with, well, I may not have given the gospel, or, you know, I may have softened a bit, but hey, I was really loving. Right? Our goal is to give the gospel. But it's never disconnected with caring for people. And we have to prayerfully watch ourselves because we probably do tend either one or the other. We might favor one to the exclusion of the other. So, all right, what, what do we do about it? We give the gospel. And we impart our lives. We work to do both. To join the gospel content and gospel care together because they are inseparable. We need to be a spiritual older woman who sacrifices time 
to walk with someone else, to be patiently bringing them along into what we're doing in order to keep the gospel path clear. Let's each one ask ourselves, how can I be that for someone right now? How can I do that for someone? And let's pray for each other that we would do that, that we would be that for each other. All right, with that in mind, let me pray and then we'll dismiss to our groups. Lord God, I am so glad that we are not left orphans. I am so thankful for your Holy Spirit who empowers us with your gospel message and who purifies us to bring out what you put in there. Lord, help us be balanced. Please help us bring the gospel. Help us know it and be comfortable with sharing it because we know that there's power, that you give us the power and you give us the conviction to do that. Lord, help us to not bark at others to come to where we are, but to humbly go to where they are, to be with them, to help them, to feed them the gospel milk and to bring them along. Help us to do that. And Lord, when we're suffering, when we're in temptation and trial, when we're discouraged, please remind us that we need the gospel. Help us to ask others to preach it to us. Help us also to preach it to our friends, to others who need it, for it's all about the gospel. Thank you. We pray and we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies. Go ahead and just meet in your groups, please, and then at 9 o'clock, you're free to dismiss.